a Lifetime original podcast. What is the most expensive thing you've ever purchased in your life? My brain. I got a $2 million brain now. You can't tell me nothing. <laughs> Talk about a flex. You do, though. You're right. I do. Your brain is... She's expensive. It's golden. <laughs> She's expensive. $2 million brain. That's so funny. Hey, y'all. Welcome to The Table is Ours, the podcast where we talk about all things black. That's culture, identity, and achievements. And with me this week is my favorite co-host of all time, Kirby Dixon. Pew, 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 pew. Once again. <laughs> That's my favorite thing to do. <laughs> now, if Kirby were a holiday, Ooh. she'd be everyone's favorite holiday, and that is Christmas, okay? Okay. Everyone looks forward to her all year, okay? <laughs> she really does bring the joy, the Christmas spirit to everyone's day. Like, literally, everyone adores Kirby, as they should. Rightfully so. <laughs> and that is Christmas spirit, okay? Also, she always has gifts, okay? I'll be her Agnes taking candies, taking notes, <laughs> like little, little trinkets. That's so crazy because you literally give me gifts every occasion you can. Really? However, I will take that. I will take that. I will be the Christmas cheer this year. And hey, y'all, y'all know who that is. That is my absolute favorite and fabulous host, Amira Lawali. <laughs> And if Amira were a holiday, you know, we got to get into the spirit. She would be... Into the spirit. The blackest holiday of them all. That is Juneteenth. Yes, it is a holiday. I love that. And you better recognize it. Not only did it start in Galveston, Texas. Yes. You know, we had a Houston queen here. But it represents all things black. Just like this podcast. It is a time for black celebration, black food, it's just a good time. I feel so seen, Kirby. That was so good. Thank you. I pulled that one out. I thought you would like it. I do. I like <laughs> it a lot. <laughs> so I do have to ask you, Kirby, what has brought you joy this week? Ooh, what has brought me joy this week? Oh, this is easy. Okay. This week, I celebrated my best friend from high school's 30th birthday. Oh, that's We fun. rented a house in the Poconos mm. with... Not one, but two hot tubs, an indoor and an outdoor hot tub. We had food, drinks, fellowship. It was just an all-around good time. So I think that's what brought me joy this week. That sounds amazing. It was so good. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. But I do, oh, I did have a little bit of a sour moment. I don't know if I should say it on this podcast, but. Spill the tea. Oh, my God. Okay, so, all right, we, we got to get real on this podcast. So yeah, we had a moment. If, you, if you've ever been to the Poconos, it is a very white. Yes. It is a very white area. I knew you were going to say that. Anytime you have a group of black people or people that look like you and I up there, we stick out like a sore thumb. You kind of feel that different energy, even if you go to like the Walmarts or anything like that, the liquor stores, kind of like, what y'all doing in our neck of the woods? A little get out moment is what I felt. Mm-hmm. And we were like, the girls were chilling in the hot tub. We were literally playing Never Have I Ever. And we got a noise complaint. Are you kidding me? And we had a security guard, a white security guard, literally, you have seven girls in their swimsuits and he comes like at night, like literally flashing his flashlight, did not announce himself. Wow. We freaked out. Yeah, I would have too. Rushed into the house 
And then he realized that he spooked us and then comes up to the beat, like at the top and literally says, yeah, there was a noise complaint, like all this type of stuff. And we were just literally, every time you think the world is getting better, racism finds a way to mess up people's plans. So if you know- That is so scary. Yeah. It was different in knowing how the world works. The guys that were with us, we did not want them to open the door. This is real, y'all. Like this is legit. We didn't want them to open the door because you didn't know, first of all, who they were what the reaction would have been had they seen two black men versus a few black women at the door. And that did happen. But listen, we talked about it today. Don't know one monkey stop. No show. Yeah. Handled the situation and then got super turned <laughs> in celebration of my friend's birthday. But like overall, the weekend was so good. It was such a good group of people. And I'm so excited to do it again. Maybe not in the Poconos, but. Oh, <laughs> Oh my gosh. Well, I'm happy you're okay. I'm also happy you got a moment of rest, even though it was a bit chaotic. Yeah, but it was good. And I think my friend mm, was drunk about 99.9% of the time. So I think job well done. That is the goal (laughs) of birthday season. Job well done. Yeah, so we had a really, really good weekend. Uh, I'm going to throw it back at you. What is one thing that brought you joy this week? I got to spend time with my big sister. Woo! She came to visit me. I saw you guys on the interwebs. Yeah. You were karaokeing it. Yeah. <laughs> Everyone knows I am weirdly obsessed with my sisters. Is it weird? Is that a weird thing? You know what? It is weird because I realized when I went to college, we talk every day, like multiple mm-hmm. times a day. And both of our boyfriends, well, my fiance now, but both of them call us like the Brady Bunch family. They just think it's weird that we all talk consistently throughout the day, like (laughs) every day for hours. You mean siblings who actually like one another? I know. (laughs) I think it's so weird. But I think it's because we were kind of like out of that age where we're fighting and now we're just like enjoying time together. Mm-hmm. And I always say that I feel like my best when I'm around them. Aww. Like I just feel at home. So it feels good. Like I love her so much. So we just had a good time. I love that. But, you know, we interview a lot of people on this podcast. Thankfully, we're blessed to be able to talk to a lot of different personalities. Mm-hmm. But this year, I'm throwing a wrench in our plans, girl. And don't be mad at me, but I am interviewing you. So get ready. You are pulling up to my <laughs> table. Okay. And you were answering my questions. <laughs> okay, y'all. She actually sprung this on me. Okay. Okay, I'm here. I am going to flip the script. I think you should. Who is Amira Lawali and who do we need to get to know even better? So I have a series of questions. Rapid fire, if you will. Okay. And they're pretty easy, actually. They're not anything major. So don't... <clears throat> I'm not going to get my full Oprah on. I'm going to get like a little a mini Oprah. Okay. <clears throat> okay. If you weren't a development executive in television, what else would you be? Hmm... This is so funny because I'm not that great of a listener. But when I was younger, I really wanted to be like a child psychiatrist. Really? Yeah, I really did. Why? I don't know. I think because I went to, I, I do know why. This all makes sense. I know why too. Yeah. We went to therapy when we lost my dad. And it was just important to have a like group therapy at that age. So I think when I was that age, I was like, oh, I want to do this. Like, I want to help kids. And then I got older and I was like, hey, you're not a good listener. So maybe you shouldn't. Like, like, I know that about myself. It just takes me a while. I have to work at being an active listener, which means my instinct shouldn't be a therapist. Like, people need other people. Yeah. yeah. No, I actually think you would be a great therapist. I remember when I was going through, like, my breakup. You had the best advice. Like, <laughs> sorry to this man. <laughs> 
like, bye, boy. Like, you see? But that only works sometimes. It was the easiest way to kind of go through. Yeah, I have a friend who's just went through a breakup, but I, I've had to learn to be like, okay, I don't know, this friend needs this. Like, I want to tell her. Yeah, maybe she doesn't want you to say bye, boy. Maybe she wants to be like, maybe you can get this person back. Yeah, that's <laughs> what I think growing up is, learning that not everyone needs the same advice. That's real. If you weren't a development executive in TV, what would you be? I would say what people don't forgot, girl, because you won't be talking about it. Oh my god, you'll be a comedian, duh. Yeah, you're totally right. I don't talk about it at all. Like what the heck, y'all? Okay, I'm gonna let you guys in. Amira, when maybe like two years in, invited me to watch her do stand up, and I'm thinking this girl's so sweet. She's so nice. <laughs> Everything's gonna be go like so funny. Like yada yada. If you say if you say you're doing stand up, I actually get a little bit nervous for you because I know jokes can either land or not yeah. <laughs> depending on the audience. And I come in, this girl went on stage and totally turned into a different person. Like, her alter ego popped out. And I was like, "Ah, okay. And then I feel like I got to know her a lot better. So that was funny. If you can ever watch Amira do stand-up, if she ever gets back to it, I would do it. She's really funny. Honestly... (laughs) This is the check that I needed. You're welcome. Because I, I do need to get back to it. Now that the world's opening up, I miss it so much. It's such a good rush. Okay. Who has been the most influential in your life? Who is your biggest source of inspiration? Oh, my mom. 100%. Mm-hmm. Sometimes I think about my mom and like where she came from. And she just thinks she doesn't really tell us her backstory, but it comes out like in little pieces. Mm-hmm. And it's not even what she's done, but it's like what she allows me to do, knowing how she was raised and how strict it was. Like, she really still doesn't know what my job is, and she doesn't really... All she knows is that I talk on the internet. I'm screaming! And for someone who's so private to just be like, you know what, I'm uncomfortable with that, but if that's what my daughter wants to do, I'm going to support it. And I just think I love that she does that. She's so cute! She's so cute. I love her. If you could live anywhere in the world, if you weren't tied down to a city, where would you go? Mm, Where am I going? I really want to live for an amount of time in Sierra Leone mm. because I want to at least experience the things my dad did. Mm-hmm. So I really like it's on my bucket list to live there for at least six months and just like try to see it sounds weird like get to know him because I was so young. It might be like a connection yeah. A weird connection and he was so connected to that place and his family so I just feel like I need to go back while I'm grown and like relive his steps. Mm. That'll be so beautiful. I love that. I know. I really want to do it. Yeah, I can see that. Yeah. And last question for you, as we are heading into 2022, I don't always think New Year's resolutions need to happen on New Year's. In fact, I think they should start a little bit before. Yeah. So you have some prep work, but what is something that you want to achieve or manifest as we head into a new year soon? Ooh, achieve. This is something I'm very happy right now. Like I'm stressed because of work, but I'm like very happy with the different pillars of my life. I love where I'm at with friendships. I love where I'm at with my family. And I love where I'm at with this man. Mm-hmm. And work is like, <laughs> work is so good. Sorry to this man. Sorry to this man, not saying anything, but I'm very happy with where we are and where we're headed. I think my only goal is I want to continue to appreciate everything that I've won in the moment. Because I think you call this right like, when we premiered last week, like, it's an achievement that we got a second season of this, Kirby. Yeah. Like, this is amazing. This is not our day jobs. This is not the bucket that people try to put us in. So the fact that, like, we both didn't stop in that moment and say, like, damn, girl, we won. Not only did we win, we won twice. We got a second season. Yeah. I think that's sad. So I really am in a moment where my goal for the next, I guess, like, the rest of the year 
I want to take a beat and appreciate everything that we've worked for. Yeah. Appreciate where am I in my job. I don't think I've ever sell. I still haven't celebrated my promotion properly. Hello. So I just want to appreciate all the good that's happening because I know, I don't want to jinx it, but like, I know that if you don't celebrate the good, it's like time swing. So before yeah. or God forbid anything swings, like I want to live in this moment where I'm happy. Okay. Well, I manifest that with you too. Cheers to celebrating the wins in the moment. I think we need to do a lot more of that. And myself too. Like, yeah. Gotta slow down. Yeah, that's what it is. Like, everything's go, 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 go 24-7. And if you don't stop to smell the roses and celebrate the things that you've literally dreamed of your entire life, you kind of forget and you don't appreciate it. So I'm with you on that one. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Speaking of reflecting and career building, we spoke all about that with our guest this week, Kirby. We sure did. We spoke to V. Wendell Pierce. He sat down with us to talk about his long-lasting career and the legacies he wants to leave behind. Oh my God, I love talking about Black Legacy. I know. In case you guys need a reminder, because we all know that this man has been blessing all of the art scene for decades, Mr. Wendell Pierce is an acclaimed actor and Tony Award-winning producer, born and raised in New Orleans. I don't even know how to say that. New Orleans. <laughs> <laughs> he starred in the HBO drama The Wire. I know y'all love The Wire. As Detective Bunk Moreland and held leading roles in Treme and Suits. And y'all, yes, we did ask him about his fatherly character relationship with none other than the Duchess herself, Miss Meghan Markle. Meghan Markle! (laughs) (laughs) And as if that weren't enough, he also starred in feature films such as Selma, Bray, and Waiting to Exhale. So y'all get ready. Wendell Pierce, let's get into it! Hello! Hello, Amira. Hello, Kirby. (laughs) Hello. We are so excited to have you. I'm excited to be here. (laughs) We have so much to get into, but we start every podcast with the same question. What is something that has brought you joy this week? Wow. That's a really good question. Because we never embrace the joy, do we? First of all, I appreciate that question. So I can stop, take a breath, and really... Think about the joy. The joy I had was tucking my 96-year-old father into bed last night. Oh, wow. And to be able to be by his bedside, looking at some football as he was uh, going to sleep. And uh, we shared a beer, right? We shared one beer and watched a little football as he went to sleep. And uh, I was just looking at him thinking about, with everything that's going on, the blessing that I have to have my father here at 96. That is a blessing. That's beautiful. Yeah. Also, we were coming up with this question, and I never realized at the time how hearing somebody else's joy also brings joy back 
into our lives. Like now I feel good. I feel ready <laughs> oh, good. to tackle the day. Yeah. It's one of those things that sometimes you don't appreciate something that you have in your life and you hear someone else talk about the joy of it. And then you realize that it's in your life too. Yeah. yeah. Well, we love this. I love this. I'm glad that we started out with that. And thank you for sharing a little bit of your joy so that we can take that into our day. Mm-hmm. As Amira said, we have so much to uncover with you. Your career, your legacy spans so far and across so many different mediums of entertainment in television and film and theater. But we're going to start right back at the beginning back to the roots yes we're going back to the (laughs) roots okay Mm -hmm. and we know you have such pride for louisiana having grown up in new orleans and your family and you actually grew up in the first african-american post-war community in new orleans so just want to kind of pick your brain as to what was it like growing up as a young black man in that part of the world well that neighborhood is called punch train park And this is when America, post-World War II, were building Levittowns and all the different communities that were suburbia in the 50s. They were really just a neighborhood a little further outside the city, (laughs) or really in in the city. But yet here in New Orleans, it was still an ugly state of segregation. And it was the fire behind the civil rights movement that created my neighborhood. A lawyer by the name of A.P. Turo was leading the effort to change the segregated laws that only allowed black people in parks, in green spaces in New Orleans, only on Wednesdays, one day out of the week, Negro Day. That was the only time you were supposed to even be in a open green space in New Orleans or you would be arrested. Wow. Right. And that advocacy led to a compromise, actually an ugly compromise of separate but equal. There was a white neighborhood being built called Gentilly Woods, and they put a DMZ between the neighborhood, this ditch, basically, that has no purpose but to separate the races, and created this 200-acre plot of Pontchartrain Park for African Americans at the time. So we took something ugly and made it beautiful, the separate but equal, and created a community that became like a Black Mayberry. It became an incubator of talent, our first black mayor, Dutch Morial, came out of here. Mark Morial, who's his son, who's also mayor, now the president of the National Urban League. Yeah. Lisa Jackson, who's the EPA director. I grew up with her, the EPA director under Obama. You have Terrence Blanchard, whose opera is premiering in New York. The first black composer at the Metropolitan Opera in New York. Can you believe it? Mm-hmm. I grew up with him and, you know, just talented, talented people. So in the middle of it is... Our golf course, it's a public golf course created by Joseph Bartholomew, the first African-American landscape architect who actually created and built most of the golf courses in New Orleans, but couldn't play on them because he was black. His own golf courses. Mm -hmm. He would have to walk the course at night so no one would see him on it. He actually played a very famous match with the 1915 PGA Tour champion and beat him. But of course, he couldn't be on the tour. And I remember... Old Mr. Joe used to sit in the clubhouse down at the other end of the bar, and I never knew who he was. And then when he died, I found out that was Joseph Bartholomew, the great Joseph Bartholomew. And that's the anchor of our neighborhood. We also have Southern University at New Orleans, which is a historic black college right here. Multi-denominational churches in a thousand homes with black folks for generations created uh, home ownership and wealth within their family. So very proud of the neighborhood. Punch a train park. 
black people do that so well, making beautiful things out of situations that are meant to keep us down. Making a way out of no way, as they say. I know. Exactly. You mentioned your father earlier. And it reminded me, because I was reading this article about when you were speaking about him and how he served his country and was in the war. My partner right now was in the army. He just got out. And I've always struggled with the difference between patriotism and racism. Oh, yeah. And how you serve a country that doesn't, like, support you fully. Right. So have you ever had that discussion with him about how you how you went to war for this country that didn't treat you right when you got home? Absolutely. First of all, Amira, you hit it dead on the head, right? That is a conflict, an internal conflict for African-Americans mm-hmm. throughout generations, throughout time. We should ask that question of each other all the time, right? All the time. Because the simple way of dealing with it is either choosing one side, right? Man, I'm total revolutionary. You know, I embrace Reverend Wright, goddamn America, right? And I don't (laughs) care, you know, may it never succeed another day. The other side is, you know, this greatest country in the world gives you an opportunity and all of that, in spite of everything that's happened to us, you know, it's great. There is a duality there that you have to always come back to and check within yourself. My father said, you can't get lost in America. Right. That was his big thing. At the time, we always thought it was just about our summer trip when we got on the car and drove somewhere. Right? <laughs> yeah, of so, course. Well, you can't get lost in America. They got maps. You know. I'll show you why you can get lost in America. <laughs> right. And then he would get lost in America. Right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and the other is the metaphorical. You can't get lost in America. The actual conceit of America is a great idea. Mm-hmm. The people who have tried to execute it have never lived up to the conceit, right? But the best part about that is the recognition of the the fact that as human beings, we will be failure. We will embody failure. We are not perfect. So in pursuit of a more perfect union is the most important declaration in our idea of what the American experiment is all about. So my father has always approached it as Understand that there are people that do not have your best interest at heart. They want you to give up your right to that conceit. They know you have every reason to give it up. Never before in the history of the world have a people who have every reason not to believe in the system that has been so oppressive to them have believed in it, has given it the benefit of the doubt that it ultimately can succeed. Everywhere else, those people who have done that said, burn down the house. Right. Right. Yeah. right. But we have generation after generation of people who have seen the worst of America still believe in the best of America. Mm-hmm. Yep. That act in itself is the greatest act of patriotism, the greatest act of patriotism. There's nobody else in our community that can say that. But the African-American community, no one else except the Native American community. Right. So that is key. That is key to remember that we have demonstrated the greatest act of patriotism now because we have every reason, every reason to not support this country. This country has been a murder to us, but yet the conceit of the idea and the pursuit of that idea is so great that we believe in it, that we still believe in the best of America. And that's how my father always taught it to us, you know. You can't get lost in America, and it's your country. There are those who do not have your best interests at heart will continually tell you it's not. 
they will always try to take it away from you. And so hold on to that. And I remember one time we went to uh, the Friday night fights down here in New Orleans. It was, you know, black power movement was happening. And, uh, and this, we stood up for the national anthem and some brothers pulled on my father's pants leg and said, come on, pop, man, sit down. What are you standing up there for? He said, hey, man, don't, don't pull on my pants leg. He said, hey, man, you know, why are you standing for the national? He said, man, don't pull on my pants leg. Right. He said, if you pull on me one more time, I'm going to kick your teeth, man. Oh. <laughs> so, man, what you ain't gonna do? Shit. Well, can I curse? I'm sorry. Yes, you can. Um, Go for it. Okay, yeah. <laughs> you ain't gonna do shit. He's like, man, you know, pull on my pants leg again. I'm gonna kick your ass. Basically, what my father was saying. And the dude did it again. He said, let me tell you something. He said, boy, I fought for that flag so you could sit your black ass down, right? So you can protest. Basically, he was telling I fought for that flag so you can sit your ass down. Now, don't pull on my pants leg. And that really. Man, that was, you know, in the early, late 60s, early 70s. You know, it was, you know, before Colin Kaepernick. You know, my father taught me, oh, that's what it's about. That's what, you see, yeah, I fought for that flag. So you can protest and sit your ass down, Black Power Movement, and say, don't stand up for that flag. Yeah. So that's what he taught me. That that's, that's the truest patriotism. You do not, like in the military, you don't salute the man or woman. Mm-hmm. You salute the office. We aren't patriots for what people in this country do. We are patriots because of what we can do with this country and what it stands for on paper. Yeah. And the cruelest trick is when people tell you that's not yours. That's the ultimate white supremacy. If we can convince all these black folks who built this country that this shit is not theirs. Oh, and we really got them hooked. We got them hooked in here forever. They're going to disavow their own work, disavow their own work. And so that's Amos Pierce Jr. That's what he taught me. That's incredible. It's so obvious that the this almost safe space, right, that was created for you by your parents and your mother and your father, despite what they went through, almost ultimately allowed you to pursue a career in what it is that you were so passionate about, right? So acting and creating experiences for people who look like you, the ability to see us on screen in all forms and all types of beauty and all types of struggles and all types of strife. And I always find it so interesting when you talk to your parents and you realize you had such a different experience navigating this world than I did. And thank you to them for allowing us the ability to really, you know, come fully into ourselves without the fear of what they may have experienced themselves. They were the Moses generation that gave us this great legacy as a Joshua generation. I have prepared you to go out into the world. They gave us a safe place, but my parents also believed in being, you know, upfront and realistic with us. So when they saw injustice, they were like, oh, let's we want you guys to see this. This is wrong. Let's see it. Let's talk about it. Yeah. Right. This guy is trying to screw over us. Right. So they didn't hide any of the violence. They didn't hide any of the the harm. They pointed it out and then said, I'm going to prepare you for this. When I was going up, I was I guess technically I was bust. Right. (laughs) I was in the gifted and talented program. Speak on it, Wendell. Gifted and talented. Yes. Brag on yourself. Unfortunately, the gifted and talented program was in the special education program. Right. Because it was a special. So 
I was actually on a short bus. <laughs> so everybody okay. thought the opposite. Oh, I didn't know Wendell had issues and challenges. I'm like, no, I don't. Why are you on the short I'm bus? I'm exceeding. I'm excelling in this. Right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, long story short, I was bussed out to an all-white school. And my father sat me down. I'll never forget this. He goes, now, son, you're going out. It was my first time encountering white kids. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right? And he said, uh, he said, you know, uh, you're going to get your ass kicked. I said, what? Oh, my gosh. <laughs> he said, you're going to get your ass kicked. He said, because they come at you. They're always going to come at you in a group. They're always going to come at you in a group. And he said, and so you might get your ass kicked. He said, but when you're getting your ass kicked, you grab the biggest one or the leader. Usually they're the same person. Mm-hmm. You grab him and you kick his ass. <laughs> <laughs> and you kick his ass. And they'll never fool with you again. And I was just like, what? You know, first of all, the violence, right? That was the first thing that came to mind. I'm like, oh my God. I was literally in fifth grade. I was 10 years old. I was like, I got off the bus, man. I felt sorry for the kids. I got off the bus and they were like, hey, how you doing? I'm Jimmy. You know, oh my I, gosh. I had a fight every day. I was just on pins and needles. I didn't know. Aww. I couldn't figure out. Cut to a couple of months later, we're playing kill the man with the ball. You know, the typical 10-year-old boy thing. You know, yeah. you throw the ball up and just everybody just piles on. And out of nowhere, it was just out of nowhere, this cat named Chet, he's like right out of central casting, you know, rolled up sleeves with a, a crew cut and a name like Chet. He said, <laughs> against the whites. Mm, wow. And I went, oh. And they circled me, Alexander, and Paul, three brothers. And I was so excited. Your dad prepared you for this moment. I was like, this is it. This is it. You know, this is my moment. This is it. And I was like, I recognized it. And I was so happy about recognizing it. Chet thought I was crazy. I'm like, come on, Ch- oh, I'm gonna kick your ass. This is the most. Oh, come on, come on. I'm riled oh. up for it. And they were just like, on three, let's get these. Oh, I'm like, come on, oh motherfucker, I'm gonna kill you. Wow. Oh, come on. I don't get. And he's like, one. I was like, three. The two, three. Come on, come on, three. By the time he called three, maybe two guys ran in. Chet being one of them, I grabbed Chet and wrestled. And after that, for years, never another issue. Wow. And what that said to me was it wasn't about Chet being racist or the white kids being racist or anything. My father was explaining to me that this is sickness out there that is perpetuated as, and this is how people, you know, at this time in the South, this is how they're going to perpetuate this ignorance. They're going to be kids who see and hear some ignorance from their fathers and in their communities that are going to perpetuate it on you. My father grew up, born in 1925, grew up in an integrated neighborhood, right? Integrated neighborhood, but segregated in the public life. And so he taught me that people will be susceptible to this ignorance and these ideas, and they will perpetuate it on you. Be a student of human behavior, Know that it's going to happen. Be prepared for it. And then you get to another place. You get past it. You get through it. I don't suggest that people go around and have these big ass fights. (laughs) Yeah. But he gave me the tools to get to a place 
to get past it and understand it. He also ignited my curiosity about human behavior, becoming a student of human behavior. And that's really what an actor is. We are students of human behavior. And that's why I told that kind of crazy, awful, insightful story. I was going to say you perfectly segued. <laughs> oh, also, it was go. very spicy. We're in the theme of knuck if you buck. I need to stop saying that because our head of HR listens to this podcast. But <laughs> I love <laughs> the the fight back energy this morning. But go ahead, Kirby. Yeah. I uh, know. I'm going to hear about this. <laughs> it's okay. We'll hear about it, too. We know how to knuck and buck. <laughs> Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. I'm curious then, if you're saying you're now into the study of human behavior, how did you get into the world of acting and decide that that was something that you wanted to focus your career on? You're really good at it. Amazing. <laughs> I went to a summer camp around that same time between fifth and sixth grade at the University of New Orleans. It was a husband and wife team in the graduate program that did theater and film for kids, a little summer camp. And I was like, wow, this is interesting. The woman called back and said, would you be in my play? It was a children's play and it was Midsummer's Magic. I'll never forget the play. And I played Jeremy, a little boy lost in the woods. And the animals were having the Midsummer Magic Festival. And the troll would always mess it up. And then I came into the woods like Alice in Wonderland. And I said, have you guys ever invited the troll to the festival? And they're like, no. I said, why don't you just invite him to the festival and maybe he'll stop? And I solved the day. Wow. I win the day. I solved the problem. A star is born. Right. And the star was born. Yes. And I was like, oh, that was great. Went on in school playing football and then got to my high school. And they came recruiting for the New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And that spark was ignited again. This teacher who told me, come and visit the school. It's a great performing arts school in New Orleans. The New Orleans Center for Creative Arts. And it taught you to be a professional. We didn't do plays. We just mm. did scenes. We just worked on scripts. We just worked. He said, you're going to have a lifetime of doing plays. This is not drama club. And we want you to go out into the world and audition locally and get into plays. But we won't do the plays here. And that prepared me. And then I decided while I was here, I also started in radio and television when I was 17. I did a show on at the NBC affiliate mm -hmm. in New Orleans called Think About It, a teenage community show. And then I got on the radio and I actually 
brought a tape to the program director at WYLD FM 98, the music FM. And he taught me radio, Root Bailey. And I went on one night, a DJ couldn't come in. And he said, you want to go on? I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. He said, first of all, uh, call your mama right? <laughs> and ask if you can go on. Can midnight. you? Yes. Right. That's how young I was. And then I went on. And, uh, and then after that, I went to Juilliard. And then at Juilliard, I knew I was being given the tools that prepared me for a career. Mm-hmm. And even after then, I had my concerns. I was like, uh, you know, I thought I, I had imposter syndrome. People are going to find out that, you know, I'm really not that good. Or I don't know what I'm doing. I really shouldn't be doing this. Been there as well. <laughs> Still there mm-hmm. today. Yes. <laughs> yep. You know, Still silencing that. Yep. <laughs> right. You got you got to silence that, you know, and it's OK to have the, that insecurity. If you're not nervous before you're performing, then something's wrong. Mm-hmm. So there yeah. should be a little nerves because that keeps you on your toes. And I guess that's what it was, really, because I said, well, after a year, I'll see what happens in a year. And I actually earned my living as an actor in my first year out of school. And then I said, OK, now it's on me to stop and say to myself, you are a professional actor. Yeah. And once I did that, then I just did what was necessary to pursue my career as a professional. So that's how it all started from a little children's play at the University of New Orleans uh, when I was about 11 years old. And like, are you a professional actor? Because I think Amir and I were talking about this when we think of consistency and career and someone Mm -hmm. that we constantly see on our television screens and elsewhere, you're top of mind. You come to mind immediately. Oh, well, thank you. Yeah, it's interesting (laughs) to hear even you go through imposter syndrome and be like, "Mm, maybe I'm not cut out for this. Well, we're glad you took the chance to do it. Yeah. And also the thing that helps me with that is diversity. You know, that's why I live in New York LA and New Orleans. I'm tri-coastal. <laughs> I try to do a play, television, and film each year, the trifecta, I call it. Yep. And what happens is uh, that kind of opens up more opportunities for you. I said, I'm, if I'm going to develop all these skills, let me utilize them. And sometimes people will just explore one aspect of our career and then get a little frustrated going, man, I haven't done a film in ages. I'm like, well, do a play, Yeah. do some television, yeah. you know? So that's what I try to do, the trifecta, television, film, and a play every year. That's amazing. And when we look at, like, your long laundry list, your long <laughs> CBS <laughs> receipt of, see, of everything that you've been in, it seems so intentional and, like, crafted to us. Mm-hmm. What was your, your strategy going into your career with what roles you took? Yeah, you always, you know, everyone wants to do something of importance. Mm-hmm. You want to do a character that's multidimensional. And and so for every one of those you may see on my IMDb, there are two or three others that, you know, <laughs> you know uh, I needed the money. <laughs> you yeah, know? That's and I real. said, well, nobody yeah. will see this. And then you go, oh, my goodness, everybody see this costume. <laughs> Thank you, streaming. <laughs> yeah, to thine own self be true. You have to be that moral guide. You know, I don't judge other actors when they do that. I'll go, oh, I'm disappointed that she did that or he did that. Uh, they didn't have to, you know. And, uh, you know, as I've gotten older and now I'm at that stage in my career where I really want to be, I really want to be as clever as you're giving me <laughs> credit for <laughs> of selecting very choice roles. I also just like to work, mm-hmm. right? 
And my mother instilled in me, make hay while the sun is shining. Mm, I like that. Make hay while the sun is shining. So I, I get a little break and I'm always telling my agents, you know, there's this, there's that. When they don't seek out stuff, they go, what are you doing? I'm actually producing this play, you know, uh, like I was in the pandemic last year and, you know, I joined with the University of Michigan, uh, at UMS. We saw, yeah. And said, let me do this play in quarantine, right? Because I'm thinking we may not get out of this. So how are we going to do art? And I think streaming is going to be the way we do it. And so we have to quarantine, make sure we're safe, do the play, and then put it out to the public on that platform. So I'm always trying to create stuff, create work for myself as an artist or for some political reason. I also do that too. You know, I'll do, uh, do a piece for the political statement that it makes because that's what art is. It's the place where we reflect on who we are and then change people's minds collectively as a group. These are our values. Now let's go and act on them. You move people to action, hopefully. And that's why I'm an artist. And that's besides the business, right? Art and business. And as an artist, you have to make those decisions that you need as an artist. I tell my agents this all the time. You know, I'm going to make decisions I need as an artist. You and I together will make decisions that I need as a business person. Yes. And then once we have that understanding, when I say no to a project and they're going, wait, but, you know, this is opportunity. Do you realize they're going to pay you this and all of that? I go, that's not what I need or want as an artist. And then my agent, my my business partners really understand. So that's why there's that laundry list. And that's how I try to select, you know, I try to select. I'm doing Jack Ryan now. I'm traveling all over the world. Yes. It's absolutely wonderful. I have a commercial success. And so now let me do something, feed the artistic soul in myself. I'm trying to produce and direct for the first time this film called Billy. Mm -hmm. I am about to develop gospel at Colonus in New Orleans, right? It's wonderful. Yes. Greek play (laughs) set in a black Baptist church, you know, with the traditions of New Orleans and using all these different New Orleans artists. So that's how the two can coexist. You can satisfy something commercially and business-wise, and then satisfy what you need as an artist. And that's how I choose my, uh, my path. Oh. I, I look at it as a path, a set of specific roles, my path. This is what I need next in my journey. And that's how I select my roles. We love hearing this because one of the main things that we wanted to chat with you about is the idea of building legacy and particularly building Black legacy. And when we were looking at all of the incredible things you've done, we realized that not only have you been such an incredible player in your own artistry and building your legacy while you're still here, but you've also had a hand in touching and building the legacies of other artists. So I feel like you're kind of the epitome of building and bringing people up as you yourself rise to a certain level. And with that said, we do want to ask you about a couple of very specific shows, which I'm sure you probably (laughs) talked about far too much. (laughs) But one, I'm a little biased and I love your character, Robert Zane in Suits, and primarily because I worked on the show. You worked on the show? (laughs) I was at USA Network as a publicist. Oh my God, Kirby. While the show was on air. And ironically, we never got the chance to work together. So this is very, this was meant to be. I know, I apologize. It's okay. (laughs) I apologize. I actually was always just a recurring character. 
I never realized how much I was on that show until afterwards. Wendell, you're in it a lot. <laughs> a lot. <laughs> a lot, yes. But it was a perfect example. I was actually doing all this other stuff, right? And every once in a while, the creator would say, hey, Wendell, can we bring you back for this arc? Can, can we? I'm like, yeah. So I would come back and, you know, shoot all these episodes in a short amount of time and then go back to whatever I was doing. So I always saw it as I am just a recurring character. And then, you know, people would be like, Robert Zane, Robert Zane. A I'm favorite like, character. Wow, yeah. You're on suits. And I'm like, well, yeah, sometimes. They're like, no, all the time. <laughs> I really enjoyed that experience. It teaches you that it's about the work that you do and the people that you do it with. That's the long lasting legacy of what you do. So try to do great work and treat people the way you want to be treated. And those are the moments that will really, really last, you know, and that's what you take with you. And so I cannot speak of suits and not speak on Megan because, you know, she became the duchess, right? And then everybody said, you were the father. I mean, you had the ultimate role. Yeah. <laughs> right. And so people always ask me about it. I was like, you know, first of all, she was this wonderful actress. I felt as though I was coming on to her show. I wanted to do a good job as a guest star. And she was always kind. We were always inventive, tried to be as inventive as possible and challenged each other as actors. And she was just this kind of sweetheart. I didn't believe she was, I didn't believe she was dating the prince and I didn't believe they were going to get married. Okay, wait. Wait, okay. <laughs> wait, yeah. wait, wait, wait. What do you mean you didn't believe it? <laughs> I just didn't believe it. Everybody's like talking about, I'm like, hey, she, ain't, she ain't dating no prince. She ain't dating no, I'm just like, she ain't dating the prince. And then they were like, uh, well, she's going to marry the prince. I'm like, she ain't, ain't going to, that girl is not going to marry the prince. I didn't say that to her, right? Yeah. I didn't and then one time we were shooting and I came to the set and there was this real serious British dude standing around, you know? Yeah. Secret Service, MI5. <laughs> yes. Right this way, Megan. Right this way, Megan. And I'm like, oh, okay. Uh, who's that? Uh, wait, hold on, Megan. One second. Look around. Okay. Now you may come through. I'm like, wow, man, she has security. Wow. And then I realized, oh, that's MI5. We were shooting in the car one time this before she got engaged. And she was engaged on the show. So she had a fake uh, engagement ring. Mm -hmm. And uh, we were in the car and we were about to get out. And they said, they came, closed the doors. They said, stay in the car. So what's the problem? There's a paparazzi about two blocks down with a long lens. Oh, my goodness. Oh, and wow. if they got a photograph with her in the ring, uh, it would blow up all over the world. They said, give us the ring. Take off the ring. The prop guy said, give me the ring. They said, all right, now you can get out because they're going to be shooting you. Oh, my God. And then I said, oh, yeah, she's dating the prince. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yep. Oh, uh, yeah. She's dating the prince. Yeah, they're going to get married. Right? Yeah. And that's what I knew. That's what I knew. And the last night we worked together, the last time I saw her, I said, listen, Megan, your world is about to uh, change. You know, you're going to be in a bubble and all of that. And I just want you to know that. I really enjoyed working with you. And no matter what happens, you have a friend. Aww. Always remember you have friends, right? Your world is going to really change. You're going to be in this bubble, but just always know, you know, that you have friends. And I hope you consider me a friend and I'm a friend. Right? And that was the last thing I got to say there. That's beautiful. When I see the hubbub and all of that, the bubble, I always think I'm glad I got a chance to tell her in a quiet moment, no one around, just... She and I, I'm your friend. You will always have a friend. And, you know, I think that probably means even more now. Like we literally saw her transition from 
you played her <laughs> TV daddy to, you know, an actress to a duchess, literal royalty to as a black woman speaking out against a system that was not kind to her as a black woman. And you, especially the media system over there. I really didn't understand how dangerous it was until about six months ago when I said I was in Budapest and I said, listen, you know, all of that is I don't care about any of that. Right. With her interview. Mm-hmm. And that was turned into I don't care about her. Oh, wow. Right. And I don't care about her mental state and all. And I, what I was saying was the monarchy is something I'm not interested in. And your fascination with the monarchy is something that is perpetuating the biggest hustle in the world. This idea that I, I still to this day, folks write checks, you know, <laughs> just because of who you are. We're going to give you our taxes. We're going to let you own all of this land. Yep. You know, they are literally called blue bloods because they felt back in the day, generations and centuries ago, that they had a different blood running in their system. Right. You have red blood. We have blue blood. We are blue bloods. Right. So it's, uh, (laughs) you know, (laughs) the monarchy is something that I don't understand. That's all. And that's what I was saying. But the media twisted it around and said, you know, Wendell Pierce attacks Meghan Markle. Of course. Yeah. 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 It's a dangerous system. Yeah. Like literally they'll take anything to attack black women or like anyone black. Yeah. Just like randomly omit this word. (laughs) Yeah. 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 But another one of our favorites. I read earlier that when you first did The Wire and when it was first begun that you didn't like you didn't think it was going to be a hit. Like you thought you might shoot a few episodes and it might be over. Why is that? Talk about a cult following. I know. I, I remember the exact moment. We shot the pilot. We shot, you know, the, the second episode. And me, Sonia Son, and Andre Royo went and watched the screening of the first two episodes. And I said, man, save your fucking money because this shit ain't going <laughs> nowhere. This is going to be canceled. Excuse my language. I'm cursing. I was on HBO. You're totally I was okay. on The Wire, so we cursed a lot. <laughs> Right. So uh, forgive me. I understand. It's on brand. <laughs> and I said, this is this is uh, not going anywhere. Save your money. See, because before then, all television was beginning, middle and end procedural shows. The case happens at the beginning. You go through it by the end of the hour. Everything is solved next week on. To it. But David always told us, trust me, I am writing a novel for television. This is a visual novel, just like you go from chapter to chapter in a book. You know, you have to develop character. You have to develop place. Sometimes you won't be in characters and then you come back later. And so that's why I thought it wasn't going anywhere. And we were out of the loop being in Baltimore. And we really didn't even know all through the first year how people were responding to it. It wasn't until we went back home in hiatus and then came back and said, oh, man, people are really into the show. Yeah. To this day, people are rediscovering it and learning about it and now every network is like okay we need the next wire like is this like the wire how do we get the wire yeah and you know i tell people all the time we were never nominated we never had any wins or anything like that so that's why you always say it's about the work that you do and the people that you do it with and more importantly the people that you do it for the audience let's let's discuss that a little bit because we're just coming out of the emmys weekend Mm -hmm. where Mm -hmm. no black people won Right, Which and sparked it was, the Emmy so white, yeah. You're, like, it's just we're so. I think to the point where we're both Kirby and I are both on the network side, right? So we're fighting for more inclusive content to get on air, fighting for more people to get hot. Great, right? Great that our screens look better, 
but it seems like we're still not honored by awards. Should awards even count at this point? First of all, art is not a competition, right? That's the first thing we have to realize. Art is not a competition. Say it again. Thank you. Yeah. Right? It's not a competition. Award shows, as you both know, being in the industry, are about promotion and marketing. Yes. That's why they're created, so that people know. We have the Emmys at the beginning of the television season. The fall season has begun. You have the Emmys, and now everybody's interested in television. It's a celebration of our industry. So let it be the people that control it. I always tell them, you are doing a disservice to the industry when you only celebrate a sliver of it. Yeah. Right. It is in your best. It is in your best interest to celebrate the broad spectrum of it. And it's not a competition because we all know when you're filling out the ballots, you go, oh, man, that's my girl. Mm-hmm. Uh, exactly. you know, she was really good last season in the show that got canceled. So I'm going to drop, but I'm going to give her a nomination now. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's the Whoopi Goldberg syndrome. Uh, yeah, I know we messed over with color purple. So we're going to give it to her for ghost. You know, I'm like, you know, come on, like, oh, come on. Whoopi Goldberg, that Oscar is for the color purple. Color purple. Right. It's not for ghost. A couple of funny scenes. She was good in it, but it's for the color purple where she was brilliant. Right. So, The celebration of our industry, you know, and now we've seemed to get into this point where you have all the the nominations are diverse. People feel as though, oh, that's fine, you know. Yeah. But then we still come to the winners, you know, and and who you select. That's when the politics and the money comes involved. That's when it's like, I want my show to win, right? We're going to do everything possible and people call around and all that stuff. Awards do not define you as an artist. Like employment doesn't define you as an artist. It's the work that you do. We should, for those who are still narrow-minded about it or don't see it as a problem or say, well, we shouldn't, are you saying we can't celebrate, you know, really talented white folks? You know, I'm like, no, first of all, all the folks that won Emmys, I supported. I was just like, yay, you know, yeah, <laughs> really almost all of them, except maybe the crown. Right. <laughs> I love the crown. They have but, enough. You know, they have enough. They have so many. Right. I was just like, you know, it, it's uh, we're such Anglophiles in America, as I always say, you know, anything British. I've always wanted to do a documentary where you take an unknown actor from New York, take him out to L.A., put on a British accent and tell him he's from London and see how his career just takes off. Right. Because, yeah, you know, <laughs> because, you know, in Hollywood, they're Anglophiles. Anything British they think is wonderful. So it's. We have to celebrate the entire breadth of the industry. And that's what people were reacting to. Also, I tell Black artists, you need to look the other way, too. Why keep banging your head on the wall with the industry that's telling you that they don't want to celebrate you? Where our A-listers should actually go to the oldest film festival in the world, which is Fespaco. Mm. And Burkina Faso, Ogadushu, bigger than Cannes, bigger than Berlin, bigger than Venice, why don't we actually work with producers in Hollywood? That would be mm-hmm. great. That would be great for Charles King to take a movie and not premiere it at Cannes, but premiere it at Fespaco in Africa. Now, how many Black artists even know about Fespaco, yeah. which was always about creating films for the expats from Africa who are in Europe and America, like Nollywood, right? The Nigerian Film Festival. It would be great to, to have Spike do a movie with Viola with a Nollywood producer in Lagos. Yeah. And distribute it with a distributor from Africa. You heard it here first. Wendell said, 
get it on the books. Spike, Viola, <laughs> are you listening? <laughs> I actually have been begging Nollywood producers to hire me forever. There's one actor who has done it, and that's uh, the great Danny Glover, who yeah. worked with Usman Sabeni. How many Black filmmakers didn't even know who Usman Sabeni was? A great filmmaker, one of the greatest filmmakers, actually won an Oscar, I think posthumously, a lifetime achievement. I mean, great. And so we have power. We have that Oscar Michu power where we can actually create the content. We're creating the content. We have more content in Urban World, Pan-African Film Festival in LA, and Fespaco all over than, than anything. We have content. We don't have distribution, you know? Yeah. Wendell, I think one of the things that you said was beautiful is kind of like thinking about artistry not being about awards, right? And I think about my favorite performances of actors and actresses, and a lot of them have not been recognized by any sort of academy or major awards ceremony. And I do want to give you the space, if you're comfortable to do so, to talk about the very public passing of your friend, Michael K. Williams, who, yes. whose character and whose legacy and whose greatness, it was already recognized, but is being re-recognized by a younger generation because of his character portrayal in The Wire and other things. But another thing that Amir and I talk a lot about on this podcast is grief and how we transition through grief and how we deal with grief. So first and foremost, we want to extend our condolences to you as someone who knew him very personally and check in on you and see how you're doing, but also talk a little bit about what it was like for you to work alongside him and see the legacy that he has built. First of all, thank you for that. As I said before, it's about the work that you do and the relationships that you create with the people you do the work with. And Michael K. Williams is a perfect example of that, the best example of that. He became a dear friend, along with the fact that I did some of my best work with him. And that would be the long-lasting legacy of both he and I, the connection that we have to the work that we did. Michael was brilliant because he was someone who brought to the screen iconic characters in ways with a multiplicity and facets of the humanity that people had never even thought about. Who Omar was, who Chalky White was, his ability to do that because of a scar on his face, given these harsh characters because of a certain look, and the man himself being the complete opposite, the most gentle, kindest, loving soul around. An actor is a student of human behavior. The closest thing to what we do is psychology. He had the ability to embody and express the humanity of characters that we normally don't even give the benefit of the doubt to in their humanity. You never pass a corner kid again or someone you think is on the wrong side of the law or has no vision or has no hope. He actually taught that to David Simon. We had a huge argument with David in the first year of the wires and you know, there's no, he thought there was no hope in the stories that he was telling. And I remember Michael and Sonia specifically saying, if there's no hope in these communities that you're trying to, that you're depicting David, you wouldn't have a cast. We came from these communities. Michael was able to express the humanity and give voice to so many voiceless people through the characters that he portrayed. And he did it in a manner that will be remembered for a long time 
because he had the ability to tap into that humanity in a way that most of us don't. It was a quote that I put out there from Arthur Miller that says that an actor will take to his dying day that one moment that in an empty theater playing a character who he gave voice to that sang an unsingable heart song that the average man or woman doesn't have the ability to sing. He gave voice to that. And because he did, he will live on in the ages. And that's what Michael K. Williams did. And he left us with a great legacy so that we can share that with people who will come after us and people who are here now who were just discovering him now because of the way we're speaking about him, but they didn't know his work luckily is documented and they can go back and find it. So if I can leave a mark on the world the way he did, as August Wilson said, I can mark my passing on a road just like you wrote it on a tree. Michael K. Williams was here. Oh my gosh, that's beautiful. Speaking of Michael K. Williams' legacy, what do you want your legacy to be? That same. That I hopefully I touched someone and made them understand and see a part of their humanity that they thought they didn't have and give them voice to that. Give them meaning and purpose and love of self and love of community. I hope they see that in my work and even look at my failures, personal failures even. Some people see me as brash, unloyal, and say that even in spite of all of that, he tried to be a better person. That's what I want my legacy to be. So many people did that for me. I want to pass it on to them, for others. you know. And that's the thing that makes it classic. When something touches people across time and place and era, and it's still meaningful to them, then it becomes classic. And that's what I hope my legacy is. The last thing I want to say is exercise your right of self-determination. That's what I hope I give people. Amen. Yeah. The power, the presence, the belief that they can exercise their right of self-determination. That was what was passed on to me in Pontchartrain Park from my parents, from the men and women who gave their lives in the mud of Mississippi and Alabama without any focus. I think of all the souls in the Selma River when I was doing Selma who died so that I can exercise my right of self-determination. They believed in it that much without any fanfare, without any focus or light on their lives. They gave their life. And that, that is the greatest blessing. And I remember when I was doing Selma, I stood on the bridge after we wrapped. I just stayed there and I was just looking in the river and I could just hear all those souls saying, remember me, remember me tell our stories. And the way that we tell that story, the way that we remember them and honor them, Amira and Kirby, is by exercising our right of self-determination. I love that. And Wendell, we know because of time, we didn't get the chance to ask you about these things, but we do want to also recognize all the incredible philanthropic and community work through your rebuilding efforts in Louisiana, through you know bringing sustainable, healthy, affordable foods to Black communities that tend to not have access to those types of items. I, I tried. I tried. Yeah. You know? <laughs> yes. But we do want to call it out and and let you know that we recognize all the incredible efforts and the things that you're doing in the black community. So thank you. We're going to put it out there and we're going to have to bring you back to talk more about that in depth because there's so much we can touch on. Yeah. Thank you very much. 
Well, if you listen, if you go online, I have a radio station here in New Orleans called WBOK, 1230 AM. So WBOK1230.com. You can listen to that station. It's a legacy station, Black Talk Radio that's been around for 70 years when they were telling you where the fish fry was on Friday and where Martin Luther King was marching on Sunday. And I joined the group and bought that station to give voice to the voiceless in this community to make sure that they're still heard. And that's a part of that. We end every podcast the same. And it's my black is influential because. My black is influential because I exercise my right of self-determination. Yes. There it is. There it is. <laughs> Wendell, thank you so much. You have a seat at our table anytime you want it, whenever you're doing anytime, any day, anything else, <laughs> come back and, and let us know and we'll promote all the incredible things that you're doing. Thank you very much, ladies. I really, really appreciate it. Keep doing the great work you're doing. Thank you for being a Black legacy builder for us. We appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. The Table is Ours is produced by us, Kirby Dixon and Amira Lawali. This episode was also produced by McKamey Lynn and Aisha Jordan and edited by Melissa Kaplan. Our researcher is Emma Fredericks. Our executive producers are Jesse Katz and Ted Butler. The Table is Ours was created by Lifetime. Subscribe, rate, and review wherever you get your podcasts. See you next week. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Mm. Mm. 